not an inter- maybe yeah i'm i'm trying to think of the irish physicist astronaut irish. some irish some irishman and it, we're yeah. going up into space <laughs> Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Speaking of Jeff Goldblum, welcome to Science at the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of our best loved and most hated movies. I'm Frida. And I'm Abby, and this week's movie is Sunshine. Sunshine on a rainy day. Just to get us started, um, we have some more feedback from my mum. Oh, yeah. In Independence Day, um, we were laughing about the women folk running to the men at the end of the movie. And we thought that was a bit silly. And we kind of went, oh, whatever, it was the 90s, so (laughs) it's fine. And she was like... No, Frida, that was cheesy in the 90s as well. She's like, it's not like it was the 50s. Um, so we take your point. And I told her that the reason why we um, were cool with it was not really because it was the 90s, but because we loved the movie. So we let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that was That's notes. fair point, though. We, we, we... <laughs> I know. <laughs> because i was a teenager in the 90s so to me it's kind of like oh yeah i guess so but you just kind of forget like that you know decades existed before that (laughs) i know i mean come on it was the free love in 60s right that's when the revolution (laughs) began and that was notes from frida's mom who was arguably (laughs) our most engaged fan oh absolutely (laughs) we we will absolutely attend to her some of her requests later down the line don't yeah. worry, Mum. We're coming for you. Anyway. Oh, she's our number one. Oh, so this is the thing, right? So I mentioned this to you in passing, and I don't think you maybe fully got where I was going with this. So your mum is our a number one Sam with a silent T. Because I have decided okay. that we need a nickname for our fans, for our listeners. Every Do good it. podcast has listener names. Really? Yeah. But... <laughs> Because our podcast name is Science at the Movies. Like, how do you, how do, you do that? They're your sciencers. Hey, science moviesers, <laughs> pod listener thingers. I don't know. It's stupid. They need but, a nickname. Yeah. So, and this one is like, this is the best nickname ever. Okay. Right? So, Science at the Movies. So, we're S-A-T-M. So, we're Sam with a silent T. But where does Sam come from? Remember, the first really good movie that we watched, Moon. Sam and our listener are all our Sams, <laughs> all our little listener clones. So our Sams, our Sams with a silent T. Sams. Hi Sams, hey Your Sams, mom's number one Sam. Oh yeah, I like it. Sam number one. I'm here for it. Sam number one. <laughs> she's the real mom. Sam. Yeah, she's she's the Sam that's down down that, on the planet, chilling with the paycheck. <laughs> chilling with the paycheck. Chilling yeah. with the paycheck, mom. <laughs> She's our original Sam. Everyone else is just a clone. She is. For yeah. original enthusiasm. Ooh, I I actually have to give a shout out to a mom as well. <gasps> Not my mom. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry, terrible. Abby's mom. No, but my... <laughs> Sorry, my mom. But no, my, but my friend Megan's Mama Mo, she made me lovely face masks and posted them up to me. And it was really, really sweet of her. And they're made out of a very pretty Flora Liberty print. And I'm so down for it. Thank you, Mama Mo. Makes me, I, made you, my day. 
Do you guys need to wear masks? Because we also, we have to wear masks yeah. now. It's the law. You get yeah, $200 fine if you don't wear a mask. Wow, really? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's fully mandated here. I'm, I'm kind of confused about it. I thought it was that you had to, but then there's people who are apparently exempt from it. So then you kind of have to be a little, they can't really police it. So when I go into the supermarket, there's often a bunch of people who aren't wearing masks. And I think even like the workers don't have to, but... I don't know. I wear them. Well, now that I have them, now that I've got pretty floral ones, down for it. Loving it. Ah, that's so cute that she sent you masks. Oh, that's very sweet, Mm. mums. My mum actually called me this morning when I was having coffee for a FaceTime chat, which never happens. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, it's really sweet. Yeah. Hanging out with mum. Yay, the mums. Yeah, go mums. You know, mums are just people. Go mums. No. None. <laughs> We're talking about too. moms as, as if they're like <laughs> puppies or something like that. <laughs> like moms, yeah. we love No moms in this movie that we're talking about, though. <laughs> no moms in this movie. No. No mothers. Oh, there's one at the end. Oh, yeah. There's a little Cameo. nod to humanity at the end. <laughs> yeah. All right. Speaking of, speaking yeah. of, you had the movie pick this week. I certainly did. And you chose... Uh, Sunshine. Is that I the did. 1999 film by Ishvan Jabo about five generations of a Hungarian Jewish family with Ray Fiennes and Jennifer Illy? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Um, if, if that's what you watched, we can talk about it. I did it. watch it and uh. I thought, I don't know where all the science is, but... Mm. <laughs> No, I didn't. Although that is a really good movie, you should check it out. Sunshine. All right. Okay, but but here, no, <laughs> no, I went, I went with the 2007 like space sci-fi horror by Alex Garland, Danny Boyle combo. Danny Boyle. Sunshine. Yes, that's the one. Not to 1999 <laughs> Sunshine, but the one we watched for this week is Danny Boyle's Sunshine, starring Killian Murphy and a bunch of other fabulous people. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give us a run through? Yes, that is the movie that we chose. Directed by Danny Boyle, written by Alex Garland, starring Killian Murphy, as well as Rose Byrne, Cliff Curtis, Chris Evans, Troy Garrity, Hiroyuki Sanada, Benedict Wong, Michelle Yeoh, Chipo Chung, and Mark Strong. This movie is a feast for the senses. It couples a musical score combining the talents of film composer John Murphy with the electronic music group Underworld with the visual styling of cinematographer Alwyn Kutchler in a bid to bring us on a journey to the sun in the most uncomfortable manner possible. The year is 2057 and the sun is dying. Without heat from the sun to warm the earth, humanity is running out of resources and time. And in an uncharacteristically united front, the people of Earth pull together to create the largest, most elaborate spaceship designed to deliver a stellar bomb to the heart of our star. A bomb the size of the island of Manhattan that will reignite the sun and breathe life back into humanity. Seven years ago, Icarus 1 set off with a team of eight astronauts led by Captain Pinbacker. And seven years ago, Icarus 1 failed its mission. Contact was lost and the light from the sun is still fading. With no other alternatives, Earth has pooled the last of the resources to create Icarus 2, a replica with a stellar bomb the second of its kind and the last hope for our survival. The crew of Icarus 2 are approaching the final stages of their mission, reaching a point where radio transmission with Earth is no longer possible. So entirely alone, confined for over a year, 
and carrying the weight of the responsibility for the survival of our planet, tensions are understandably high. Human nature is evident and relief is sought wherever they can grasp it. Then everything changes when the distress signal from Icarus 1 is heard. (laughs) When recalculating their trajectory to intercept Icarus 1, the ship's navigator, Trey, makes one of those gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, let a hole open in the ground and swallow me mistakes. One small miscalculation that leads to a series of events that cause damage and destruction to both the spaceship and the crew. Our stoic Captain Canada sacrifices himself for the survival of the mission, and in the first of many deaths in this movie, he meets a fiery end as he comes face to face with the full impact of the power of the sun. While investigating the eerie silence of Icarus 1, they find the crew dead in the viewing room and captain's logs that suggest a mass suicide in response to newfound ideological beliefs. But before they can return to Icarus 2, the airlock is sabotaged. This leads to a classic space jump scene where we lose a few more crew members. Trey, racked with guilt beyond our imagination, takes his own life. Mm. And in the silence that follows, our physicist Kappa seeks solace and solitude in the payload, where he tests the device he has devoted his life to, mesmerised by the small sparks of light that bring hope to the bleakness of their reality. In the final act of the movie, the villain enters from the wings. A chance conversation with the Icarus 2 AI interface informs Kappa that they won't reach the drop point before they all die. But there's enough oxygen for four crew members. Yes, Kappa, but there are five. Kappa finds the Icarus 1 captain, Pinbacker, alive and very unwell on the observation deck. From here on, we're watching a fight for survival, not just of the crew to complete their mission, but a fight for the survival of the mission Pinbacker believes he has been set by a higher power. For seven years I spoke with God. He told me to take you all to heaven. The culmination of this is a slightly trippy sequence of fight and flight on all angles of the stellar bomb, ending with Kappa reaching activation point as the payload hurtles towards the sun. He ignites the bomb and in a truly beautiful final moment stands in awe as he watches his life's work come to fruition and reaches out his hand to touch the sun. <sighs> I'm like listening to your summary. I'm like getting very carried away <clears throat> um, because it's such a beautiful <laughs> with movie. With your loopy sound effects, <laughs> with well, my I'm just getting atmospheric about it. It's like a very atmospheric movie, and there's so much beauty in so it. Atmospheric. It's very beautiful, it really is. and there's a lot of thoughtfulness in it. Um, but did you love it? I loved it. <laughs> you I loved it. I love this movie. Oh, that's re- I mean, it's special. That's for sure. It's weirdly one of those movies where I watched it and I was just like, I love Danny Boyle. And I love Alex yeah. Garland. And I love this cast. Right. And I love this movie. Yeah. And it was so interesting to me that it didn't do well. I was like, the first time I watched it, I was like, this is, this is now my favorite Danny Boyle movie. Out of all of the rest of them, huh. I was like, 28 Days Later was wonderful. Train Spotting is a classic. Everyone raves about Slumdog Millionaire. But I was just like, how has nobody watched this movie? 
Like, I know it's like the slow burn and the audience grew over the years and it's gotten a bit of a, like a cult following. But I was just like, this is yeah. so beautiful. It's stunning. But what no, I thought was really special. cool about it was like, I saw this um, re- movie review. There's this um, film critic over here called Mark Kermode. And he does like a lot of kind of little reviews oh, and yeah. stuff. I know, I know. And um, he quoted this or he just has like this review where he says these words that I just love. And it's, it's Danny Boyle's most unloved most underrated and most misunderstood movie did you so did you enjoy it like do you recognize it as a good movie or do you see why it didn't kind of get the popularity um I do I do see why it wasn't popular actually oh, okay. because it it's skirting a couple of different worlds and I think it's not fully in either of them it's possible right. um that, you, know, you know I actually watched the movie I watched the movie two times right the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is a cool movie. And it has a slasher thing at the end. And I was like, okay, you know, like it's got a lot of stuff in it. The second time I watched it, I was so amazed at how good the first two parts of the movie were. Like I was way more engrossed in it. I had more attention to detail. I was appreciating the different set pieces and the soundscape and the whole like the detail um, that they give us about the shields and the ship and the detaching from here and the oxygen garden and the concepts and the characters and the performances that when I got to the third part I was like oh no no no, this doesn't measure up to the incredible like how incredible the first two parts are kind of had to watch it second time to really appreciate just how disjointed that is and I wish that they could have brought in Pinbacker in there and his fanaticism and brought us these ideas about fanaticism and the way some people might respond that way Mm. um, without getting into this kind of um, murky or hokey even um, pulpy even trashy I don't know like I'm using these words that I'm like the first I like supreme the first two uh, thirds of the movie the third third of the movie is kind of a little bit a little bit trashy right and doesn't quite live up and i'm wondering yeah i mean this is obviously alex garland's writing yeah but i i wonder why danny boyle i wonder at the combination of both of them that they both agree that that was the direction to go it's sort of surprising to me um i don't know like why did they do that that's sort of my my impression of it because when you kind of look at the connotations in it it's like Alex Garland said that he wrote the script as an attempt to extrapolate the future of mankind from a physics-based atheist perspective. But then the movie itself has got all these like huge religious undertones in it. And Mm, there's this like super fun fact about Danny Boyle that I don't know if you know this because I never knew this. He was going to be a priest when he was younger. And the only reason he didn't become a priest was because he watched the movie A Clockwork Orange and then changed his mind. Um. Do a lot of people want to be priests? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Isn't that weird? But then doesn't it, it like is, it is make weird. sense then when you think about the movie and this whole, you've got Alex Garland with like this atheist physics perspective and then you've got Danny Boyle with all of this like religious connotation. And and I get it where they were coming from with the whole son is God and Pinbacker is like, you know, evil and or the devil or but wants the destruction of humanity. But I didn't need Pinbacker. The Westboro Baptist yeah. Church. <laughs> but that's where I totally agree with you. I did not need Pinbacker. Like for me, it the story would have made so much more sense to me if the if this kind of um fanaticism developed in Trey. 
You know, Trey made this devastating decision. Mm. He, this decision is okay. causing, like, it's likely to cause the end of humanity because everything that's happening now means it won't go forward and he's ready to commit suicide because they're not going to complete their mission and everyone's dying and it's all his fault. And it just would make more sense to me if something clicked in his brain and he started along that path of like, you know, um, this is all happening for a reason and God wants this to happen and God doesn't want us to do our mission. And then that fanaticism would build yeah. and and he would be the one, you know, damaging the airlock and doing all this. So for me, like just this sudden appearance of a villain in the, like I said, the villain coming in from the wings in the third act. And you're just like, where have you been? What's going on here, man? Why, what are you doing here? You know, I, I agree with you so much what you just said, because as I was watching it, I understand that they want to talk about fanaticism. Mm. But I wrote down, why do, why do people become fanatic? Like, I wrote that down for myself, yeah. right? So I was, because I was trying to figure out, like, what were they thinking? What were they doing? They're trying to talk about fanaticism versus being agnostic versus atheism or whatever it is. Like, they're trying to explore different ideas. But when you're, so... It's one thing to surrender to God's will, yeah. right? It's one thing to be a religious person and say, it's happening and I'm going to call it God's will and I'm going to surrender, right? But it's quite another thing to put your, yourself at the center of all this and turn yourself into like a Christ-like figure yeah. sent down and it's your mission. That's like a huge, huge jump. So I think that there was fatalism like a, in a lot mm. of them that they accepted their deaths. So, you know... When you know you're going to die, what does it mean to be a hero, you know, um, and what do you then choose to do with the rest of your life? Then it's quite another thing to become destructive and harm, like harm people, right. right? But now what you're saying about why would you become fanatic to, in, out of denial? Yes. The, your brain creates like a cocoon to protect yourself from the horrendous soul-crushing guilt and like... That makes so much sense that Trey obviously seals everyone's fate. Yeah. Remake it, Danny. And Remake I love it. That. <laughs> Remake it. I love that I love that this whole thing happened just from simple human error. Yes. Just human error. Just a miscalculation. Yeah. Like something which is quite simple that it it, it it was it was easy to miss, but you're hundred percent correct. Fanaticism would come from someone like Trey. Right. Who, who just needed to protect himself from what he was feeling yeah. and just say, you know what, uh, maybe I'm sent here from God. Maybe I'm just like uh, I'm sent to do a mission and I have mm. to ruin it. And that's why you would become fanatic. That That's the reason why. But the sun, speaking of the sun, by the way, and death, yes. it's so crazy because nothing better than the sunshine, right, Abby? Nothing better than the sunshine. It's true. <laughs> and yet it burns you. And close enough, it can kill you. Don't mm. look at it. It's a perfect analogy for God, the generous God who gives you just what yeah. you need and not a little bit more. Gives you life, but can also cause the complete destruction of life. That's exactly yeah. what it is. We we are only here because of the the power and the life that we get from the yeah. sun. So of course, and if yeah. we lose that, we are screwed. So of course, we're gonna deify the sun. Typical humans, basic yeah. bitch humans. It's true. That's very yeah. true. Oh, man. How good's Cliff Curtis, though? I love that <sighs> He's actor. very good. Oh, my God. Do you know that they all lived together during filming? Really? 
Yeah, it was like a method of like method. It was something that like Danny Boyle, I think he set up like as a kind of method acting thing. So they'd all like cook together and just simulate simulating experience of being enclosed on a ship, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I just I think about about it when with that first scene um, when they're all like cooking together on the ship. And that's where Kratos has that great line about the the dark darkness. Darkness envelops you and light yeah, bathes the, you. Or the light, the absence of something. But yeah, it's great. Um, Cliff Curtis, we love Cliff Curtis. Who else is in that? We have a Michelle Yao as well. We have a couple of yes. incredible actors. I really like Michelle, Michelle Yao. Yao. She's so good. She's so special. There's a cool thing. Yeah, she is really special actually because they. Danny Boyle said that. Um, I said I wasn't going to say Danny Boyle's name too many times Danny in Boyle this recording, Boyle. and I one hundred. It's going to be a drinking game. Guys at home, take a shot every time I say Danny Boyle. Boyle. It'll be a lot. Um, he he did say in an interview, though, that like the, when they had Michelle Yao come in to read, they loved her so much that they basically just said, you can play whatever character you want. Your choice. And she's, she just said, oh, I'll play the botanist. Oh, that's amazing. And they were like, okay, cool. <laughs> I love the oxygen I garden. I, I can't, I can't wait to get to our science <gasps> section so, so we can talk about it, these incredible yeah. science set pieces that they have, like these crazy it ideas. Um, it's stunning. But I think the, the, the theme of the movie, it's like very clear to me that it's about the, well, so we're going to be specific and say about the deification of the sun, but I think it's also about mm. the you know narrative and perspective that we, that we build around ourselves in order to get meaning out of life. As we hurtle towards yeah. our death, which we hope will be meaningful and we hope our life will be meaningful. And I think there's, those are the ideas that are clearly being um, explored. Yes. Um, but as far as um, little themes or tropes that we wanted to talk about that came up for this movie, Abby, what is your trope of the week? My trope of the week. My, my, super, my super fun trope because... Hey, pinbacker appearing out of nowhere is fast yeah. zombies. Fast zombies, speedy, speedy half dead people. Well, zombies are dead people, but <sighs> pinbacker is like his skin is falling off. There is a there yeah. is a full scene there, that scene at the end where like he grabs him by the arm and his arm basically just rips. I think I wrote down for that scene. I just went arm ripping off. Nope, whole pinbacker nope. image. Just nope. nope oh my god! Nope. Why like, couldn't they have just found him? How can him? he move? How so is he silly. actually physically moving? Like he the oxygen garden was there yes. on Icarus One. He obviously yes. had the he had what he needed to survive for the seven years. Yeah, but he's obviously doing that. Like the the idea that we get at the beginning with Cyril, like starting to get little burns on his face because he keeps reducing the iris thing. We won't talk about that just yet. We'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, like, he physically is completely burned. How is he moving? He's chasing yeah. them. He's managed to kill a ton of them. Yeah. How? How did they it's not just push him and he just went down? We never really saw him. Not really. Yeah. It was like this made of light. Yeah. He was obviously having some like sitting on the tanning bed a lot. <laughs> and so he was somewhat <laughs> burned and <laughs> I don't know, Christ. skin cracking. But they did turn him into like a monster basically. Yeah. It was like. <laughs> Why do they do it? It's just so crazy because so much of the movie is like so careful and so considered and so meticulously mm. constructed and they just like chuck this thing at you in the third act. Yeah. It's like, uh, oh, hey. <laughs> fast zombies. Um, yeah. yeah. So I'm that's me. Fast, fast zombies. Fast zombie. Danny Classic. Boyle. Classic Danny movies. Boyle. 
Damon, Damon loves a zombie. Like, he loves fast zombies, doesn't he? <laughs> I, I sure don't like fast zombies. Because yeah, you can't, yeah. how can you outrun it? There's no yeah, point. I just, but I, I don't, like, it's not, it's just, how is it moved? That's all I want to know. How is he physically moving? It's complete madness. Yeah. Um, that was my idea. What, what is your, what was your trope? Trope? My trope. My trope of the week is this thing that comes up in movies. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's called, I'm going to call it, um, airlock drama. <laughs> airlock drama. <laughs> Because this is like, uh, I love airlock drama. Yeah, an airlock. And there's airlock drama in, in, because airlocks are like this great science that everybody is across. Like we all know what airlocks are. We all know the way they work. We all know why it's important. We all know why it's dramatic. Like it's an idea that is recycled over and over and over again in space movies and submarine movies. And with, I feel like it's like every space movie has something has to happen with the airlock. The airlock Maybe it's like a rule. Maybe they say that you can't make a movie unless something happens to the airlock. Unless it's airlock drama. And this movie has a two doses of airlock drama. Not one, but two. This movie has two of something else as well. It has it doubles up a little bit. It doubles up on airlock drama. Do we need two airlock dramas? I don't know. But it also doubles up on foreshadowing Mace's death by freezing because... He, in the beginning of the movie, he sticks oh. his hand in the coolant, foreshadowing his death. But then he also oh. freezes when he goes out of the airlock. Double mm. airlock, double freezing. <laughs> he goes out of the airlock and he's at, um, well, they say minus 273 degrees, yeah. which is zero Kelvin, is it not? Um, out in space and he's freezing and they have to cover him with blankets. So he has two times they foreshadow that he's going to die from freezing. Yeah, so that's interesting. That's a bit lazy. <laughs> airlock drams, but there's so much. I love airlock dram. We yeah. all do. We all love it. It's like a crowd yeah. pleaser. It airlock is. That, there's always, and so Science, often it's that drama. moment of the scene in the movie where it's like, oh no, now you have to jump. <laughs> You're just like, okay. Quick, 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 quick. <gasps> Close the airlock. Or all this, the scenes where there's like the airlock closes and someone realizes they're locked and then they realize the door's going to open behind them and they're dead in space. They're great. Yeah. That's oh great airlock drama. Too, oh my God. Yeah, a great <laughs> airlock drama when they realize that it's, they're done for and it's got to yeah. open. Oh, it, it's just the most perfect, perfect idea for drama. Yeah, airlock it drama. really is. I like it. Yeah. And I, I like great it tropes. as a yeah, new hashtag, airlock drama. That'll be on the t-shirts. Airlock drama. <laughs> I love it. You just have having dreams about yeah. t-shirts. Sexy science pillow like, talk. I'm dreaming of t-shirts. We haven't had a sexy science pillow talk in a while. Right. We'll come back to that. <laughs> oh my god, we'll line a few up. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, we have to make sure that we get something. Um, um great tropes, yes. Abby. Zoom high five. Oh, love boom. the tropes. <laughs> All right, those were our tropes. Nice. All right. Oh, just before we move on, I'm just going to say, because people might be hearing a little slight whirring in the background, but it's because it's like 36 degrees or something here in London at the moment. So it is super hot and my laptop is having a little overheating moment. So if you hear mild whirrings in the background, I do apologize. But stealing the dog's cooling mat is not really being as effective as I would like it to be. (laughs) She's fine. She's fine. She's got her water and she's in the shade. She'll be right. (laughs) As they say. Uh, speaking of overheating uh, computers, <laughs> I think that it is high time for us to get into 
science yes. and how the environment of science was depicted in the movie and how the scientists themselves were depicted in the movie. And I think there's no better place to start than we'll talk about the set pieces. Yes. And let's start. Let's start right there with the computer room. Oh, oh I really like Why that not? computer room. <gasps> Loved it. Was great, wasn't it? I, th- I, I, I never knew about coolant, sub- submersive coolant. Mm. It's called immersive coolant, okay. where the whole computer frame is in the liquid. It's really a oh, thing. Okay. Like it's been around for a while. I don't think it's like hugely common, but definitely for like gaming shit. Oh yeah, of course. Those people have the coolest stuff. Yeah, they do. Yes, yeah. technology reserved for 100%. games. <laughs> so true. Of course. <laughs> but yeah, him uh, yanking the yanking it down into the mm. coolant to to cool the mainframe, and you know then getting stuck on all that. I thought that that computer room was like awesome. Yeah, loved it. It was very. Yeah, there were so many things that I never saw before, you know, like before that I was like, oh, that's cool. It was very. It it was like the so the thing with the the design like um they hired astrophysicists NASA people science advisors, futurists, um bunch of different people to like consult on not only the science but also like the design aspect and the feel of the environment and I really yeah I think that's that's where it kind of comes from the. Although they might have skimped a little bit on some of the the science basis, uh, not skimped, but you know they might have kind of gone, yeah, we're not going to do that. Um, but definitely, like I think the apparently yeah. the NASA people were a bit more kind of hardcore on the actual spaceship itself, on kind of like you know yeah. the layout and the different um, the different rooms and things like that because they were just like, no, this is like super important. You need to make sure that like each room is equipped with the right kind of needs and all that and you kind of felt that didn't you like yeah. it, it felt like each room was the personality to the person oh. like the flight deck I, I was Rose's like space you know and Corazon yeah. in her She's... garden yeah well let's go yeah. through them then well we have the captain that's Canada yeah. and then, but then we have Searle he's a psychologist the psychologist being in charge of keeping everybody in check and keeping everybody well and he has this like cool office that's his space and like this earth room where people can go there to get mm-hmm. a dose of Earth. And then we have Kappa, the physicist, right? He's in charge of the nuclear bomb and running all those tests. And then we have Mace, he's your engineer, like making sure the mainframe is working and using, of course, um, spanners to fix it <laughs> so that it's absolutely clear that he's fixing a computer <laughs> with a spanner. And then we have a Corazon, she's a biologist, taking care of the oxygen garden. Then we have the communications officer, that's Harvey. And then Cassie, she's a pilot. And Trey, he's a navigator. And he's um, he's calculating all the flight paths and calculating the trajectories and making sure that they're doing the um, slingshotting and all that kind of thing. So we have like loads of scientists there all working together, all having different roles. How did you feel about that environment? The scientists all working together. I loved it. If there mm. was one thing that I really kind of felt like um, really kind of stood out to me was that feeling of the scientists all working together, like the normality of their relationships, the cooking, the arguing, the preaching and just the group dynamics in general. But then that each person had their own space, their own like this is my space and my zone. But 
each yeah. space is relevant yeah. to everyone, but it is really identified by that one individual. And it kind of highlights why the destruction of the oxygen garden destroyed Corazon. Like it was a complete emotional devastation to her because that environment is so important. Not just that like it's her babies and it's the survival of the crew, but it's like it's her. That was her space. Her, okay. you're in this ship. You're in the like you're out in space. You're far from home. You're completely isolated, and that is your one net, your one thing that you hold mm. on to, and to lose that. But um, yeah. So it's like there's definitely a lot of psychology. Yeah, there so much about her, her space and herself and her identity with that. Space. And I feel like they put so much effort yeah. into setting up those spaces to really kind of connect mm. with the people and to make it like I did. Yeah, I particularly love the oxygen garden. And she, yeah, just like, I don't know if, if it was something I really thought about before, but she always, she just looks so happy in the oxygen garden. I was just going to say, yeah, her, her place of peace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then that, that, um, that room in Dr. Searle's office mm. where, you know, I love that scene with Mace in the, um, what did you call it? I, I wrote down the earth pod. room. The earth room, yeah. yeah the earth room. And that scene where he's there and he just wants him to keep replaying the waves crashing. And yeah. you're just kind of like, oh yeah, because I suppose if, like, he's more of the cool character. He's, he's not obsessed with the sun. He's like, give me the freshness. Give me that, give me that water, that, that coolness. Oh, to kind water. of keep me and calm, water. you know? And, um, yeah. yeah, I just, I thought it, I thought it was really, I thought it was really well thought out mm. and really well laid out. And I thought it was very impressive. Oh, yeah. did you know that the cinematographer specifically, um, specifically requested that everything, nothing inside the ship be gold or yellow? So that there oh, really? would be that contrast with the sun. Yeah. yeah. The, the only thing the that cool, is gold is the space The cool ship. shade. The cool shade of the spaceship Shoot. and the 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 brightness of everything outside of it, I guess. Or outside yeah. of the shield. But just back to Corazon for one second because I no- I noticed something. Uh, it just stood out to me, which was that um in the in the scene where the oxygen garden is is destroyed. She's wearing like these denim shorts and her hair is in like pigtails, plaits. Oh, yeah. And I just thought what an odd thing to wear on a spaceship now. She kind of looked a little bit like a little girl so that when like her oxygen garden is being destroyed and she's like screaming on the ground, she looked kind of like a little girl crying with pigtails. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it just felt, it felt pretty, pretty weird to me. But I don't know. Maybe they're saying something about her innocence. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I think know, that's what. Yeah, that's what I would feel from it. It's like because she does because she has such a huge change, you know, from that kind of like light, light and airy. I suppose yeah, yeah. innocent person, and then it's destroyed, and suddenly she's just like, "Fuck kill it, let's people, kill everyone." Please. Yeah. <laughs> We need to kill three people. People got to die. Okay, let's go. Do it. And she's in Birkenstocks. She's in Birkenstocks yeah. slides. That's that's no reflection or anything. But uh, uh, no, yes. Yeah, so after her oxygen garden dies and her peace goes and her spirituality goes, I suppose you would say, she's like, we need to kill three people. We just yeah. do. We just have to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I think they're trying to tell us something there. Yeah. Yeah. We have. Um, so we got the oxygen garden. We got. Um, we've talked about the mainframe, we've talked about the psychologist's office, but I think we haven't talked about Kappa's Manhattan 
Um, oh my god, the island room. of Manhattan room. The yeah. island of Manhattan where he's oh, doing his yeah. tests and he's testing yeah. out his little bomb. And he's the nerdy physicist. And yeah. I don't know. Did you did you get from him a good physicist kind of feel? We're physicists, aren't we? we yes. We. So as a physicist, <laughs> what do you reckon? Did kinda, feel I right? felt I, I enjoyed him. I enjoyed, I think, I do think that um, the intention that he had, that like Killian Murphy had in kind of the portrayal of that role kind of matched... For me, he, mm-hmm. like, I mean, we we haven't mentioned yet, actually. Sorry, Brian Cox was the scientific advisor on the movie. Um, he did he did give some guidelines to the actual science of it, which we will talk about in a little bit. But he definitely also was, like, kind of a guidance for the scientists as well because... Um, he not only gave lectures to them all about the sun and uh, solar physics in general, but he spent a lot of time with Killian Murphy and Killian Murphy spent time at CERN with him just trying to learn about how scientists interact with each other and behave and react. The thing that I found most interesting about it was that um, what the, the main question that Killian Murphy actually asked Brian Cox was, what would it feel like to finally see the thing that you have studied for your whole life? And that's just what's amazing because like Brian Cox says it himself about like studying particle physics. And he's like, you know, you you study it and you spend your whole life with these things and you can't actually see them. And it's the same with the sun. And I think that's where the whole intention, a lot of the intention in the movie comes from this obsession with this thing that's there, but you can never experience it. You can never touch it. And it's the same with, um, with the Kappa character where he's in his... Island of Manhattan size bomb and you know it's like the intention is that this bomb will go down it will ignite and it will reignite it will set off and it will reignite the sun but he will never witness that he'll never witness the actual function of the bomb igniting he cannot be there to see it so I think that's where his like constant fascination comes from but also like the pedanticness maybe of like constantly checking that it's working is it okay is it okay is it okay always checking your work check your work yeah, but I think he enjoyed it. He enjoyed running the little test again yeah. and again. That makes did that, you that like him as a physicist? I did. I liked him, especially on the second viewing, much more. I think I noticed oh, that okay. he had this kind of, um, he was a bit more keeping to himself. He sort of, the way he held his hands a little bit closer to his body, um, keeping quiet. I, I didn't really get why suddenly he's fighting Mace all the time. That felt a little bit out of character, felt a little bit um, mm. macho, but yeah, like checking, checking again, rechecking, like seeing something that like something that you've set up and that you like and you're kind of checking it and checking it again. I really did like yeah. his character as well. It was probably, yeah, he did, definitely transformed himself. Um, I did actually read about the Brian Cox thing, which was that um, I did actually read that um, when he was first cast, Danny Boyle um, was concerned that he was too good looking to play a physicist but then when he met the film's um, science consultant Brian Cox and he realized that Brian Cox looks a little bit like (laughs) Killian Murphy in style and as well he kind of looks like him and he was like oh no no, that's all right they do both have like mildly androgynous features 
Yeah, I guess there's a bit of androgyny there. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a similar kind of look there. Um, you know, yeah. So I feel like he definitely felt felt right to me. <laughs> but I think yeah, I think I like what you say about him being yeah, he like keeping to himself and you know I really felt that that he was just kind of like standing back in his. It's almost like he has that kind of, you know, intelligent confidence. Does that make sense? Like that kind of confidence that you get where you're just like, I'm smart. It's cool. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's really funny. Speaking of the the emotions is that um, the the men, they have two scenes where they're fighting, which is obviously, oh, yeah. you know, they're not getting hold of their emotions. They're fighting really hard. And of course, the women make these little side comments of like, hey, yeah. guys, we're low on air, you know. <laughs> There's um, an excess I, of manliness breaking the, out. Exactly. <laughs> But but Rose Byrne, like she was, she had her heart on her sleeve the whole time. She was an emotional yeah. person. But there are different ways of being emotional. I think like people, all too often, they they sort of um, save that word for women. Um, but mm. men have a way of showing emotion too, Absolutely. and sometimes it comes out in anger, in fighting. <laughs> <laughs> that's a huge display of emotion yeah. and there are different ways that we spill over with our emotions there are and yeah, some people are like true. this and some people are like that and they showed all the flaws in people and how emotions yeah. can get in the way Ooh, fun thing um yeah. i don't know if you picked this up but I, I i have no idea if this is an intentional thing but i just thought of it and went i kind of like that because what? when i was writing my notes originally i kept writing kappa as kappa the Greek letter Kappa. And then I like read something and I was like, oh, it's spelled C-A-P-A. And then I was like, oh, but did they call him Kappa because of that? So for people who don't know, Kappa is a Greek symbol that we use in like physics and mathematics where it represents a physical constant. So I just love the idea of this, like that they might've chosen the name out of some symybolism that Kappa is the physical constant in the movie. Yeah. Well, oh my god, oh my god! Check yes, out my insights. Come on, keep your keep the physicist alive. I wrote that down. No matter what, keep the physicist <laughs> alive. alive. I was like, yeah, <laughs> no that never what. happens. <laughs> keep <laughs> save the physicist. No matter what, because I always wanted like, if we were at the end of the world, would I be one of the people that would be like saved and in the walled city because I was important? And I was like, shit, I better gear up to being somebody that's super <laughs> yeah. useful because I don't think they're gonna be like theoretical physicists. Yeah. Come on over. So it was really cathartic in this movie to see them at all costs, no matter what. People save like killed the themselves to save him, and he was the constant man. He had to be alive the whole time. Yeah. I love that. I hey, see, there that you clicks. Go. Yeah, no, that makes because he is there the whole time. <laughs> what other stuff? And and they so we have our environment of science in the different rooms. We have our characters that are many different sorts of scientists, each having different strengths, mm. each having different weaknesses, each being like strong individuals. Um, but I think maybe we can move on to the science with the movie science. doesn't obsess over the science itself, but we can obsess over yeah. the science. Yes, we can. That's what we're here for. And there's quite a lot of science in there. There is. Um, Before we get into the science, can I just say yeah. that there was a lovely yeah. interview that I watched and they were, like it was with Danny Boyle and Brian Cox. Um, I can put a Danny link Boyle. up to it. It's with Mark Kermode as well, actually. It's um, the three of them talking about the movie. Oh, yeah. And um they are talking about the connection between science and art. Brian Cox is saying about the distinction that science is absolute, whereas art is subjective, but that it is possible to join the two. And mm -hmm. I just really feel that this movie is such a celebration of using art to depict the beauty of science, coupled with the terror of nature. 
And it's just a movie that really highlights why I appreciate the concept of like artistic license over accuracy. So I just want to give that okay. as a little bit of a nod before we before we talk about the science. It's a movie. It's definitely not as like accuracy is not going to be as important because yeah. it's a movie. We're watching art and about this movie in particular, I didn't question the science. You know why? Because they were so specific about the things, right? Mm. Gold suit, oxygen garden, the coolant, the mainframe. Like there was so much specificity. Specificity. There was so much specificity. Specificity. (laughs) There was so much much specificity about the decisions there was so much there was so much you work in medicine there was so much there was so much you work in data science in medicine (laughs) okay i'm gonna boot back up now thank you anyway there was so much specificity (laughs) in the in what in their decisions um in the movie that i was like i trust you I trust you. Yeah. Yeah. Gold suit, I trust you. That I'm not I'm you came up with this idea of like a gold suit. I'm not gonna be the one to question it. That looks amazing. Oxygen garden. I thought about researching it and then it made me think like, is that an option for humans? Once we cut down all the forests, we need oxygen, oxygen gardens. I thought about it, but I was like, it looks awesome. It's original. I mean, it's probably not that original. Maybe there's other movies, but to me, I didn't find myself questioning it. I just Mm. enjoyed. I enjoyed. Having Very said good. that, let's question. <laughs> Dying star. Number one. Well, that's the thing, because I didn't, with the science of this, I didn't look at any of the actual, yeah, things like the the spaceship itself and the, the shield and the, like, it all comes from ideas that exist. And, you know, um, I'm sure there's a lot of truth behind that. I know that there was a lot of people involved in the making of that. It's more yeah. about like the premise of the movie, you know, let's take a look at the science of where, where that kind of comes from. This idea of the, as you said, the dying star, the dying so star, the general <laughs> concept comes from the idea of what's termed the heat death of the universe. And it's the idea okay. that there will be a time in the future where we will have the death of all differences in heat. So basically everything everywhere is the same temperature. But we require a temperature difference to function. If we're all just the same, then we no longer have excitations, reactions, creating new things. Energy will eventually dissipate away and the whole universe becomes nothing but particles existing at a fraction of a degree above absolute zero. Does this sound familiar to you? Absolute zero being minus 275 degrees but celsius particles existing at a fraction of a degree above absolute zero like at the beginning of the universe like spectral uh, remember that movie remember that one grounded <laughs> in truth remember, yeah remember the <laughs> Bose-Einstein condensate killing everyone what but anyway so i have no idea that eventually i did not yeah i'm not making any legit physics connection to that right now <laughs> just saying that that when i when i was looking at it i was like hey that sounds familiar anyway the script by Alex Garland is taking the idea that the sun will eventually die due to the heat death of okay. the earth and saying, hey, what would it mean to us and what would we do if it happened right now in our current reality? Okay. So 
At the time that Alex Garland and Danny Boyle were collaborating on the idea, Brian Cox was working at CERN. Lucky them. Yeah, they're very lucky also, them. Also, he had just put out like a Horizon TV show. So they were like, let's get this dude. They approached him and asked him if he could think of a scenario where the sun would die and we could reignite it. The first response to that question is a hell no. But <laughs> because he's a scientist and we love a good theory, he asked around the office. Through some chats around the tea room, they came up with a slightly bonkers idea, but based it in some real theory. And the idea is to use a cue ball. So these guys are based on ideas of supersymmetry. And they would have been created back during the Big Bang. Um, The cue ball itself, it's like a super stable particle. It's capable of breaking down protons and neutrons. Sorry, it is a super stable theoretical particle that is capable of breaking down protons and neutrons. (laughs) Let's be very clear. Um, It's got, for the physicists out there, if you want to be super nerdy about it, I'll put some links up. It's got something to do with the baryon number, but I am not going that deep dive into this. So if it can break down protons and neutrons, then in theory, sorry, protons and neutrons, then in theory, it could eat a star from the inside. But this depends on the density of the star and the stability of the matter. So in reality, our sun is not dense enough to capture one. So we're not like, this isn't going to happen. We're not in any danger here. But if a cue ball was found to exist in this context, then it itself would be so dense that it would just slide right through our sun. But a neutron star would be a different story. So while you can't just restart the sun with some spark plugs, you know, if there's an object that's causing it to decay, then in theory, you could attempt to remove that object. So, you know, stellar bomb. But that that brings us to making a stellar bomb, or as as I like to I'm... call it, De- Deus Ex Nucina. Yes, this is a a film trope <laughs> that I've just learned about called Deus Ex Nucina when <laughs> when oh the nuclear bomb is somehow the answer to everything and saves everything. When has that ever happened? Anyway, stellar bomb. <laughs> Deus Ex Machina. Deus Ex Nucina. T-shirt. No, to ring the bell for a t-shirt bell. Deus Ex Nucina. So, yeah, you're so right. It's just this, like, we've got this thing. We don't know what to do with it. Let's bomb it. Let's nuke it. Bomb nuke it. The nuke it. Nuke, nuke the bastards. Nuke it. did we hear that? That was interesting, wasn't it? <laughs> nuke the bastards. Um, Bill Pullman. Yeah. But, yeah. God bless Bill. Um, but they, so yeah, so they're like, okay, let's nuke it. And, you know, th- I think that's where like Brian Cox kind of checked out of the science of this. And he just kind of went, yeah, I'm not really with you on this because, you know, it's just crazy talk. I don't understand. Like, why did they ask him at all? They were always going to do a story about the sun is dying in a nuclear bomb reenacts it. Did he add one sentence to the movie where they said like one no, thing about No, so this is the thing. It's not even in the movie. They don't talk yeah. about it in the movie. No, because they didn't need to. Hi, hi. We have had a brief interlude because due to the 36 degree weather in London right now, my laptop got some heat stroke and had a crash. But I got some ice blocks out of the freezer, puckered it all up and now it's super cold. And we are back and we're talking science. We're back. Science. (laughs) So let's leave the, we've just been talking about the science fiction premise of the movie, but let's leave that behind and get into some real science. You ready for some real science, Rita? Yep. I really, really, really want to talk about how we move through space. 
Because the events of this movie all happen because they changed their trajectory. But do you know what this actually means? Do, uh, do you? Well, I know there's something to do with using planets um, as slingshots and approaching from different angles, maybe. Um, things like that. I know that was a factor in it. Um, yeah. But and, what else? And that, Well, that's the thing. It's like... And what's happening here is they, you know, you have your start point, you have your end point, your trajectories, then your path that you use to get there. And in the movie, they change their end point to being Icarus 1, which changes the angle of approach to the sun, meaning some of the ship isn't behind the shield and it will burn yeah. up, which is the big, you know, oh my God, this is the fatal error problem that sets Trey off oh, on, oh right. Jesus, what have I done? But the reason I want to talk about this is because it's such a huge topic in movies. Like, it always comes up, isn't it? In, like, Interstellar and The Martian as well, where we talk about how it's, like, a change of trajectory and then we can use this and we can do the slingshot. And Oh, my God, totally. Always. Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like let's let's have a look at it to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk some basics. Now, we should all know that we can't just fly out into space like an airplane because... Firstly, rocket fuel is crazy expensive. You need a huge amount of it to provide the thrust that will get you up to an escape velocity. Plus, depending on the type of rocket fuel you use, it can be super heavy. So if your ship is already heavy, hello, bomb the size of Manhattan. I'm guessing that's a pretty fucking heavy ship. Yeah. You're going to need a lot of fuel. Now, we can take it that in the movie, Icarus is probably more advanced technology, might have lighter efficient fuel maybe rely on that a little bit more but in general in like in reality right now the way we move through space we need to use as little fuel as possible and the way we do this is we use orbital transfers and gravitational slingshots so first things first there's no straight lines in space a spacecraft is always orbiting something because remember our sun itself is orbiting the center of the galaxy i'm just i'm still stuck on the word thrust Thrust. Thrust. Anyway. <laughs> did, you, did you want to talk about thrust for a moment? <laughs> we need enough thrust to get us up. We do. We um, need the thrust. So we're always... <laughs> well, we do. Because first we need to get the thrust to get us into space. That's right. To get us out did of the have... gravitational pull of the Earth and into the exactly. orbit around the Earth. And then yes. out of that orbit into another orbit kind of like electrons and shells jumping up up oh no oh cool yeah no i just i never thought of that yeah energy to get out of one layer and jump up into another thing you need the thrust the thrust to get you up (laughs) we're always we're always in something's gravity interesting i like that Mm. so yeah basically we want to get from We want to get out of the gravitational pull of the Earth. We want to get into space, first of all, but we also need somewhere to go. So we need a reference trajectory. And to calculate a reference trajectory, this is actually done through like a whole suite of navigation software. It's like implemented, tested, upgraded. I think the most used one and the most advanced one is by NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. And it's all based on like abstract mathematics. And that is something we will not be talking about. (laughs) Oh, damn. (laughs) Darn it, no abstract maths today. (laughs) But in the movie, our guys are heading to the sun. They're moving to the inner regions of our solar system. 
Now, we have sent probes out and there is one currently on the way. It's the Parker Solar Probe and this little guy is destined to get closer to the sun than we have ever been before. It's going to go into the sun's atmosphere about 6 million kilometers from the surface. And in the technological future of sunshine, they appear to have found a way to do this in under two years. I'm Mm. not sure how realistic that is, but the Parker Probe was launched in 2018 and it won't arrive until 2025. So that's a seven-year journey. Now, yeah? How do they know how close is close enough? Or how close is too close? How do, how, how do they know? How do they figure out, and also same with the Icarus too, going towards the sun. Mm. Um, but how do you know when you're too close to the sun? Unless you've I never suppose, tried it. Yeah. Well, I suppose because we can calculate like the energy that's coming from the sun. So I suppose if you can calculate as it as it radiates outwards, if you can calculate what the energy is at certain distances, like yeah. model what the likely heat energy is and then model what materials you have and what you can withstand. Because mm, that's what word. it's all about, really. It's just it's yeah, it's not it's not necessarily about like um, how close we want to be. It's about how close we can or the materials get. that we can build and send into space can actually withstand the heat that's coming from the sun as it gets closer and closer. It's the R squared law. The the distance. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that's the one. That the distance um it's one on the distance squared. That's how much the radiation will decrease by um mm. as you go away. Uh, one on the distance yeah. squared. Uh, so there you go. Yeah, so the Parker <laughs> probe is on its way to the sun it's going to arrive in like five more years is that what yeah you said? that's it five more yeah Jeez. five more years so to get there it'll have to undertake 24 orbits and 70 venus gravity assists which are slingshots 17 these things like seven seven okay yeah. seven slings seven slingshots um Yeah, so these things, like I said, they come up again and again in movies. So we'll get some groundwork done now because I'm sure we'll talk about this again in the future. So let's start with an orbital transfer. This is actually called a Hohmann transfer orbit and it describes the way satellite changes from a low Earth orbit to a high Earth orbit or what we all want to know, the way we get into orbit around another planet. NASA describes this as throwing a dart at a moving object. Because Uh you have to remember, planets are at enormous distances from each other And we're all constantly moving. So to get to the sun, you want to go by Venus. Venus, do you know that Venus is 108 million kilometers away? That number, I I don't even know how to to characterize that number. It's just... Right? It's like saying a bazillion. Yeah. Yeah, you're just like, we know it's super far, but it's like, yeah, how do you, how do you in your mind, but like, yeah, it's far. Yeah. say that it's super far um it's uh so yeah 108 what we're gonna do basically is we're like it's like we're planet hopping and we're gonna use some cool properties of orbital dynamics to give us a boost now to get the spaceship into orbit mm. around venus you do the home and transfer we can't just set off anytime we want and head to venus like it's not like just finding an airbnb for your country weekend you know it's like plot it into the sat nav and just head there we actually have to catch Venus. We can, we have to catch her because I'm going to refer to Venus as her because I can say her it is, because it is the only planet in our solar system that is named for a woman. <laughs> so um, 
to get to Venus and we when we want to set off, when we decide to set off from Earth, the time window occurs every 584 days. So you can only launch to Venus roughly every eight, uh, roughly every 18 months. These trajectory calculations are so important to make sure that you hit the moving target at the right time. We initially are aiming for like an empty point in space, but by the time we get there, Venus will have continued on her orbit and she should be waiting for us. Wow. Now, once you do this, you then need to use your thrusters, use a little bit of your fuel to get close enough to Venus so that you're then pulled into an orbit by her gravity. Now you've done a Holman transfer, you're in orbit around Venus, and that's super cool if you want to study all of the surface features of the hot, hot planet. <laughs> Do you know that all of the surface features, bar like three, on Venus are all named for women as well? Uh, that's nice. It's the only place. <laughs> it is. They're all named for, and it's notable women from both like real, real women and from um, Mythology. fiction as well. So yeah, I Amazing. just thought that was kind of cool. You set off from Earth... You have a trajectory that will get you to an end point in Venus's orbit when Venus is there. So you can be then caught by the gravity of Venus, pulled into orbit there, and that's your home and transfer. Now, mm-hmm. what do we mean when we say slingshots? This is the one I really love this. It just sounds so cool. Like slingshot. Like a I know. Slingshot around Venus. It's the same as slingshot is the same as airlock in movies. I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like a drama slingshot that's based. Drama. It. Hashtag it. slingshot drama. Slingshot drama, airlock drama. It is super cool. It's like a super cool principle that people can kind of somewhat grasp, I think. Yeah. So gravity assist and slingshot, it's just basically the same thing. What we do is we start off the same, we leave Earth and we head to Venus. But this time, we don't want to get pulled into an orbit. This time, we want to take advantage of the big ball hurtling through space to gain some speed and change our trajectory. How can we get speed from a planet? We can't buy it. <laughs> How do you get conservation? As you know, energy can't be can't be created and it can't be destroyed. It can be transferred from one form to another. <laughs> so, so we look at there is the conservation of angular momentum or the, the conservation of orbital energy. You cross the planet from behind and approach it as if you're going to enter an orbit. Now. Because of the gravitational pull of Venus is so much bigger than your probe or your spaceship, you get pulled more towards the planet, which changes your trajectory. But it also speeds you up. But at the same time, Venus is moving away from you as you approach. So if you have the correct angle, you won't get pulled into an orbit around Venus. What you'll actually do is you'll skim past the planet. You'll pick up some of its orbital energy, which will increase your velocity that's why it's called a slingshot because you'll come around the planet and you'll shoot out from behind it at a faster speed and on a different path and you can do all of this without using any of your fuel let me get this straight okay (laughs) you approach venus from behind with your probe so you take your probe (laughs) and you approach venus from behind and venus is running away from you you want to get there with enough thrust. Just joking. <laughs> sorry. I'm really sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. Please continue. And Venus, Brilliant. and then she's like, and then you're like, and then you're, you have your probe, and then you have enough thrust, and then you just use Venus um, to, <laughs> to, get, to further your career. To further your career. And 
That is very clear. But what I'm getting is that those exact calculations are really important. Yes. You have to calculate this to the to the what like hundredth of a degree to the time yeah. of day, the time of year or whatever. Well, because remember as well, like we've got, you've got these probes and these spaceships that are, you know, you're out in space, but once you're in space and you're moving and everything else is constantly moving, you're never absolutely precisely sure of where you are. Yeah. You have to have all these other reference points and you have to constantly recalculate because there's all this other stuff that happens out in space with like, you know, gravitational pulls as, as you're moving and things that I don't know and cannot explain in this <laughs> podcast, but that will alter your trajectory slightly as you're moving along. So you constantly have to correct. Yeah. You constantly have to do this, this thing called a trajectory, trajectory correction maneuver and they're small corrections. Yeah. But what actually happens in this movie is they, to change their trajectory to go to meet Icarus, what they're actually doing is they're doing a deep space maneuver. And that's a big deal. And the deep space maneuver needs to use fuel. So to if you have packed enough fuel to be able to perform a deep space maneuver, then that's not so bad. So assuming that they have done that, that they have enough fuel to be able to do the deep space maneuver, continue on the path to the sun and still get home, then then that's fine. But um, doing it isn't it's not like changing lanes on a road. No. Or just saying, oh, I'm going to drop by grandma's house on the way out of town. You know, it's it's a big deal yeah. to do it. And I can't actually tell you how many calculations are included in plotting the trajectory and aligning all of the components of the spaceship. But what we can say is they're planned a long time in advance. They're super specific. And the decision to change them in the movie, it wasn't straightforward. It was put on the physicist. The navigator had to implement it and the pressure on of that implementation on one person, how devastating that was on him. Yeah. And I just thought like it was it was such a huge thing. You, like even you didn't even need zombie Mark Strong, but that's right. Trey and his the horror that he felt in that moment. I felt it and I get it and I love what they did with it. And I just thought it would be a cool thing to kind of talk about a little bit more. Rather than just kind of skimming over, always kind of like, yeah. oh, they changed trajectory and that's that. It's not It's yeah. not how it, it's so much more complicated and it's such a cool thing that is always a part of movies. And I just, yeah. I like it. It's science, I think, is that's awesome. It is really interesting and like going into it deeper, like it makes us see the weight of responsibility that was on Trey in recalibrating yeah. that. And the fact that he was like doing it on his own um, and he didn't, well, I guess he's the navigator, but... Uh, do you, whose fault was this? Like now that we sort of think more about this was the responsibility put on Trey to calculate this exactly when when they had probably years in advance calculated these trajectories already and then to ask him to like make a change is probably unreasonable. So I don't even think it was his fault. I think. Yeah, I. And was it Kappa's I'm, fault? I don't know. Because the well, question that was asked of Kappa wasn't was should we have two nuclear bombs instead of one that's a different kind of question mm. should we change the entire mission i think that that's canada that's yeah canada's actually he's the failing captain. he's the captain exactly it's, it's his responsibility you're so right yeah and i think that's maybe that's why 
he sacrificed himself in that moment because he was like, I, I'm the one who's responsible for this. But what I actually, I have been thinking about it a little bit more. And I do feel that when I really think about this and I think about the trajectory stuff, you firstly, it's like, I don't understand why. I mean, I understand it plot wise, but there's no reason for him to be doing the calculations himself. Yes, I think that that's a, a bit of a plot hole, don't you think? That the that he did yeah. it manually. And another another plot hole, which I mean, I don't I don't really mind about the plot holes, to be fair. But like, I I, I have been thinking about it, and I wrote down here that it's one error, one mistake, or if you think about it, a totally incompetent fuck up. Because how, in the scope of all of the calculations that you have to do. Would you forget to realign the most important thing being yeah. the shield? Yeah, like that crazy. would be number one. I just cannot imagine how you would be yeah. like, oh, we, we're going to do everything else to change our angle of approach. But we're not going to move the shield yeah. like that's just absolute number one. So, I mean, we could put it down to just the pressure of being put into that situation. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that this was like a plot device put in the middle of in the, well, in the first act of the movie to make it go off in a certain direction. It doesn't make sense that he was calculating everything on his own and then went immediately on his own manually and realigned it without having anybody else in there, without having some kind of protocol of, hey, here's the protocol for doing any kind of trajectory corrections. Here's the protocol. We do this, we do this, we do this. And the fact that they have an artificial intelligence there or some to some degree a very sophisticated computer um, who can assist in making sure all these things are done. The fact that he did it on his own as if it was like changing lanes, like you say, right? Yeah. But now that you've gone through all of how risky and complicated it is, it doesn't make any sense that he just calculated it and implemented it on his own without anyone else around, especially because later on in the movie, they show how you need a second person to switch the um, navigation to manual. Yes. Um, so yes. he would have needed another person. So it is, I, yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit of a plot device. I think a lot of this movie has some plot devices, like just plot devices in it. There's definitely, yeah, there's definitely a few points, all right, where it's just kind of like this, this is just here to, to lead the plot in a direction. And the thing is, I'm not mad about it. It's fine. I'm, I'm cool with it. I enjoyed the movie. So I'm like, yeah, bring me where you want to bring me. I'm here for it. It's a very visceral experience watching this movie. Very oh much. God, yes. It really, really, it really, really is. is. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, watching the movie, it, yeah, it, it's, like, uh, very hard to look away. And, like, you know, that's what you want from a mm-hmm. movie. You want to be, like, be pretty much en- enchanted by it in, in a trance. And that's definitely that's what nice I experienced watching the movie. Could it, yeah, yeah, I was, like, in a bit of a trance. Anyway, is that is that the end of our sciences? Yeah, that oh. is. That was really interesting. Abu. Yeah. Trajectories. Cool slingshots. Cool science, and <laughs> we're like we're su- we suddenly turned into like a a nineties children's show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we're time to go into our next segment. Are we? Dun, dun, dun. We ready? Yeah. Play some bring music. it. Bring it. What the? What the? What the? All right, Abby. Tell me, was yes. there a moment in this movie where you were like, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the hey, hey. Um, there was a, f- 
There was a few. Yeah. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with just a casual one, and I'm gonna give you my actual one. Okay. Right. So the casual one is firstly, like, let's just talk realistically. Like, there would not be a fucking viewing room. That's just. Yeah, Straight up. Why like would you put a viewing in room the in the middle of the shield? That's insane. What is that? But I'm going to give you a... I'm going to give you my main what the fuck. Okay. Now, right? Okay. Right. We have a lot of shots going to the payload, right? Yeah. A lot of shots of this. Yeah. You know, you see the scope of the payload and you see Kappa in the payload, right? My, my problem is with the entry point, the okay. door, where the door into the payload is. Because yeah. it looks like on the vast scope of this thing, it's somewhere in the middle. And Kappa has to run all the way up the payload and go in through his little door down to activate it. Yeah. Now, at the point that he's doing this, when he's been in his gold suit and then he's jumped over and he only has a few minutes to get there, right? Yeah. He has to get there and he, he has to activate a timer. it. Yeah. Right. This thing is the size of the island of Manhattan. How long does it take to get across Manhattan running? Oh, yeah. He runs, like, he's running through it. What the fuck? Like, how? What? what? Wait, what? What? There was no taxi cabs. He wasn't what do just you like mean? hailing and just get me over there. He's running across how, the whole thing. From when he comes into the main door and then yeah. he runs across this huge yeah. vast thing to go down into the like little tunnel thing, which is where it looks like the entry is. Yeah. It looks visually like it's somewhat central yeah. to this payload. And if the payload is the size of Manhattan, He's then running. he is entering from the edge of the island of Manhattan and running into the center of Manhattan. Of Manhattan. Yeah. Manhattan's big, man. Yeah. Uh it's, yeah. Uh, it's not like you're in the park <laughs> and you're just like I've just got to run to the middle of of the park. It's the size of it's the size of Texas. It's the size of the island of Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What was the thing? It was supposed to be the size of Kansas, but no one could visualize how big Kansas <laughs> was. So they're like, we'll just say it's Manhattan. Let's just say Manhattan. Yeah. Even though I, I can't visualize how big Manhattan is. It definitely scales. The scale of everything was difficult for it to really come across. To really understand the scale of it definitely and the, and the scale of the shield their whole it was like quite a complicated architecture the whole thing not that there's anything wrong with yeah. that but yeah when they were like in the room i did, had no idea where they were i thought it was in his head by the way the first time i watched it <laughs> <laughs> he like jumped off the ship he like exploded out of the sh- airlock or whatever yeah. he like jumped onto the other thing and then i thought he was imagining the whole thing because then Cassie turned up and I didn't understand why she was there. So I actually watched the whole thing thinking that it was all in his head. (laughs) Then the arm came off and I was like, what is this? I like, (laughs) I thought the whole thing was he had died and that was like in his, he had, it was dead. Oh, wow. Had to watch it. I mean, Cassie was a bit of a loose end. It was a bit like, why is she in the payload? Is this a love story where he's supposed to save her? But then even like in that final scene when he gets that, like the final scene is beautiful. Like that whole moment and he's there and he gets to see the thing that he's never been able to see and never would have been able to see. So he's just in that moment and he's reaching out and it's like, I can see the sun, but I can also see like the the ignition of this thing that I've created sort of thing. But um. But like that whole thing to me was just like, where's Cassie? I was so confused. Oh. Where'd she go? <laughs> yeah, well, she. I, I, I guess that she had been running from Pinbacker and she ran into the payload to get away from him yeah. before he detached the payload from the ship. 
But I, I, yeah. do, I do have to say that the third act was like a total mess. I really wanted to not feel that way when I was watching and I was like, no, this is mm. great. This is totally normal and like I like it. But I was so confused. If I'm going to be really honest, yeah. um, I was just like, whoa, what is this? Where is where is he? Oh, my God. What the fuck's going on? How? What? what? Whoa, what? Oh, 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 okay. Like that was my experience in the third act oh, <laughs> pretty <God>. much. Like. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, so that was definitely, um, yeah. and it was so different to the first two bits in the movie because the first two bits I in the know. movie, I was like, "This is such a lovely viewing," and then suddenly I was like, "What?" Um, yeah, so yeah. I'm embarrassed to say I thought it was all in his head. <laughs> oh my it, god, that's hilarious! It's surreal in this weird room and the angles yeah. and they're being distorted, and it's some like weird fight to the death in the middle of this like I know artistic space movie. Suddenly, there's like this crazy fight to the death with like a serial killer who's like all burned, and then like an arm comes off, and then like there's Cassie. Mm. And speaking of a Cassie. I really yeah. love that scene when she dresses. I don't know if we've spoken about this yet, but when she dresses Kappa in his spacesuit. Oh, yeah. Um, and I she's think... like getting him in it. It's kind of like very intimate, a bit like female gazy as well. She's dressing him. <laughs> it's very, something's very central about mm. it. There was quite a few little nice moments that they shot in this film, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, definitely. There were definitely, yeah, there were definitely some really lovely yeah. moments in it. That and was- yeah, I mean, I agree with you about the the final. Wait, before we do this, have you said your what the fuck? Moment? I haven't said my what the fuck, but I'm on oh, tangents. Right, okay. What was yours? What was your what the fuck moment? All right, my what the fuck was basically like, okay, so the cast, okay, it's mm. an Australian, Rose Byrne. It's Cliff Curtis from New Zealand. It's Michelle Yao. It's Kappa, is Irish. Who else have we got? It's Benedict Wong, who's British. Yuki from Japan. And we've got an American, that's Mace. Mm-hmm. Ja- Japanese person aside and Michelle Yao aside, everybody else has American accents. Why? Why? It's an international <laughs> crew. It's an international crew, right? Everyone around the world. So why are Benedict Wong faking an American accent? Why is Cliff Curtis faking an American accent? Why is Kappa American? Everyone has to be American. Why can't they just speak in their accents? Because I really think it, it affects people's ability to emote to a degree when they're like faking an accent, surely. Like really, it's really hard to do, I'm sure, faking an accent because you're doing a whole other thing at the same time as you're trying to talk and emote. So I thought, what the hell? Just let everybody speak, even though there's no way a New Zealand person would ever end up <laughs> on an inter- Maybe Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of the Irish physicist astronaut. <laughs> Irish. Some Irish, some Irishmen, and it, we're yeah. going up into space. <laughs> oh, tickle me! Blah, blah, blah. Sorry, that was... no, you're not allowed to do it. <laughs> I don't do Yiddish. You don't do Irish. That's the deal. <laughs> so you be you be an Irishman in space. Go on. <laughs> what is? Tis, tis fair cold up here, guys. Oh, yeah, isn't it? <clears throat> oh, a yeah. Bit, a, a, bit, a bit of sun wouldn't go astray. <laughs> I'll oh. drop into the viewing room there. Has anyone got some Factor 50? Well, you better get into the viewing room. <laughs> Have a little bit of a sit, in the, sit under the waves, mate. Oh, oh yeah. here, there's a, there's a zombie-looking fella in here. <laughs> Don't worry about it, mate. 
I don't know why I'm faking. Why are we faking accents? What are we doing? I know. Like, we have those accents. <laughs> it would be like just you. Because what are we I doing? have a quite neutral Irish accent and you have a quite neutral Australian accent. So we just have to ham it up a bit. That's <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, that's. I think that was my point. It's yeah. just like, it, it's so weird. And actually, it's so stupid. Faking accents is so stupid. I just think it's a stupid, stupid thing, like a faking an accent. Like, I like, I liked our little scene moment. <laughs> Accents are stupid. Um, okay, I think we've come to verdicts. Final verdict. What I think about this movie is that it has some moments in the movie that I think will go down in history as great scenes in movies. Do you agree? Like there are yes. some things in this movie which people will revisit forever and ever, like because they're so spectacular and so beautiful. It's just like yeah. the third part of the movie, I think. Yeah, like it lets down a little bit. I would, in an ideal world, I would be like, Danny Boyle and Alex Garland, I love and appreciate you, but can you just remake the movie and get <laughs> rid of zombie pinbacker? And so can we just intense. have all of the events of the movie occur the way that they occur, but that the villain is Trey? Because I just think it makes yeah. more sense that he would have some sort of a break at having made such an error that he mm-hmm. would then become fanatical and he would become like, oh, no, I didn't make this error. This is happening because God wants this to God happen. God made me. Yeah, and let's explore that. Then, yeah, and he just goes a little bit crazy and... Everything else would make more sense to me. Yeah. But I, agree. I will say that even with the addition of Zombie Mark Strong, I very much enjoyed yeah. the movie. Like you said, there's just scenes in it. There are scenes and there are moments and there's sounds. Oh my God. And there's yeah. things that I can just visualize in my head so well. Absolutely. And it, like aside from Kaneda's death, like I can see Corazon sitting in the destroyed oxygen garden with the yeah. tiny, beautiful like little um uh oh my god seedling seedling yeah with a tiny little beautiful seedling in her hand and yeah beautiful you know there that that's final scene with kappa in front of the sun yeah i just you know there is there's such beautiful moments moments. yeah my my favorite moment of this movie is canada's death it's also the first time that the score swells up Mm. um and that his death, like that is that is so uh, beautiful. And uh, again, th- there are parts of this movie that I'm sure we will revisit again and again and again and again and again. Absolutely. Um, and that, and that it doesn't, it isn't dimmed by the fact that the third act is totally weird. Those parts are still worth watching many, many times Absolutely. over. Final verdict. Woo-hoo. Having said all that, what is your verdict? First, did this movie pass the Bechdel test? I mean, no. Of course that not. It, it didn't. But there was there was two female characters. But there was two good female characters. It's who just could have been played by the, men. Yeah. Yeah. Normal. But like it was just more that the way that the story was lined up, they didn't have any scenes really to interact with each other. But then also, I don't feel like there were that many scenes in general where people were massively interacting with each other. Cassie and the, Kappa definitely had quite a few, I would mm. say. And then we had a little bit with Kappa and Mace. There were a couple of little inter, you know, yeah. crew relationship, little conflicts and stuff that was going on. But yeah, like it was an ensemble 
cast. Yeah. They just wasn't would, really the opportunity for the two women to be speaking to each other about anything. But yeah. I didn't feel like I didn't feel like it was I didn't feel like they were there in service of the men. No, I think it's nitpicky of us to be like, oh, they weren't talking to each other, but it didn't pass the Bechdel yeah. test. That's what the they Bechdel had fully test formed. Is it, it didn't pass. Yeah, that? it yeah. didn't. But they did have two very fully formed female characters that were there in their own right and had their own moment internal they had their own internal stories and yeah. internal struggles and they each had their own um and they did have uh, those couple lo- of good moments as well of just oh, being amazing. just like eye roll at the men yeah yeah <laughs> even though yeah they both had like powerful emotional moments as well mm. um okay and did it pass here comes the science what do we think i i feel like kind of like what? in kind of the sense of the environment that they put up and everything, then like, I think I, I really enjoyed it. I have no problem with it. And yes, if we're talking about Here Comes the Science in that they didn't have that moment that we talk about in movies where suddenly someone stands up and goes, I'm now going to explain to you everything that's the reason why we're here and what's happening. Like no. that didn't happen. So it was interwoven. Like it totally did. And yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Um, if we're yeah. not going to nitpick as to what, like the realities of the sun dying and them hitting a bomb, like sending yeah, a cell yeah. bomb into it and all that all that kind of stuff. And like sound and space. Come on, we, we all know that. It's it's yeah. just the decision that is made of taking like the style and the art over the accuracy. And I'm kind of cool mm. with it. So Yeah, I love the science of this movie. Like the the context, the wider, wider, wider context was that the sun is dying in the nuclear bomb, but the content of the scientific content of the movie was fascinating. Mm. So much detail, so much technical detail that it was so interesting to watch, whether we're talking about the gold suits, whether we're talking about the mainframe and the coolant or the oxygen garden and watching the navigation calculations. I think there was so much exciting technical aspects to this movie that I really, really enjoyed. And so for me, 100% passes the Here Comes the Science. Yeah. I really enjoyed watching such a science movie, but that yeah. was also beautifully dramatic and beautifully artistic. So that was really, really up my alley, um, even though such there's a slasher. The slasher bit. Yeah, we just, yeah, yeah that, that's my, my note here. Zombie Sun Man, no. Zombie <laughs> Sun Man, no, I, I also love the religious deep dive into it. Like, I, I find that stuff, yeah. like, really, really, really fascinating. Like, what is our relationship to the sun and to the world around us and to, like, our narrative of our lives? Like, I love that stuff. So, this had mm. movies had loads of stuff in it, which brings us into what's the final verdict out of five? Okay, I think I've been a little bit, um, I think I've been a bit too generous with my grading so far and I'm going to have to <laughs> restart it. Okay. okay, we're gonna we're gonna have to come back to like, because uh, I gave Independence Day five and I gave Moon five, <laughs> and it's boo. like I'm not giving myself any room. So I'm gonna we're gonna reset my scoring and you start reset from the with, start. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna start here, and I am going to give um, Sunshine um, out of out of Suns. I'm giving them four point two Suns. Ah. I think it's a it's a solid uh, four starer, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna give it. I was gonna go three point eight, but um, no, I'm gonna give it a four star because from cool. a technical point of view, there was it was like just really fascinating and 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 with a lot of like science fiction fantasy movies that have a lot of technical stuff, I I often find myself like 
really confused and disengaged from the plot. Too many characters, too much, too much going on, too many relationships. But apart from the fact that I was totally lost in the like final act, the final, yeah. final act, I really followed like what's the problem, what went wrong, what is the nature of all the characters, what's the goal, where are they going? I was like, I'm here, I get it, this is engaging and interesting. The score is sensational. The visuals mm. are nothing I've ever seen before on film. Um so to me, solid four stars. The one, the one star is f- fuck that zombie sun guy. Yeah. So <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. So sunshine. cool. So yeah, that was. So I chose sunshine, and yep. you are going to um. Sw- switch what 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 am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> so right. So this week, sunshine was my movie choice. So you have the movie choice for our next. Re- for our next episode, what have you picked? So, I'm picking something a bit less culty because I think we've had two cult movies in a row. We're going mm. back to the 90s. The movie that I am doing <laughs> takes us into time travel with 12 monkeys. Hey, I've never seen it. Yes, I've never seen it too. Oh my god. This is the first yeah, time so that we've had a movie where neither of us have seen it. Neither of us have seen it. Oh um, my god. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there right now screaming going, how have you not seen this? I am I aware this movie exists. I just didn't I was watch t- it. I was too baby. Yeah. I was too little because it's it's a scary movie. I think it might be a bit scary. Oh, But okay. I think I was just a little bit too young to watch 12 Monkeys. I have no idea whatsoever of what it's about. It's about so, time travel, we'll definitely. So okay, it's, cool. This would be our first time travel movie <laughs> yes. that we haven't hit the topic yet. I can't wait to hit time travel with you. We're going to have some okay. deep dive chats into time travel. And <laughs> so, all right, that was Sunshine. And in two weeks' time, you're going to join us with 12 Monkeys. And next week, we're going to continue our 90s disaster movie mini series with Volcano and Deep Impact. No, so, that would be Dante's Peak and Volcano. Uh, with Dante's Peak and Volcano. <laughs> so if you'd like to join us, please do. Um, if you want to get in touch, email us at signsatthemovies.gmail.com. And also, please, please, please subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review so other people can yes. uh, see us too. That would be awesome. All right. Um, you can also catch us on Instagram at Science at the Movies. And Frida, I believe we are now on Twitter. Yes. Tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet. We're on um, Twitter. What's our handle? Movies. It is movies underscore science. Because apparently yes. Science at the Movies is too fucking long for Twitter. Boo, Twitter. Which I'm very annoyed about. <laughs> yeah, so follow us so, on yeah, Twitter. So yeah, movies underscore science. You can find yeah. us. Twitter is fun. All right. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I'm very sorry. I've been Maybe Frida will learn how to speak again. (laughs) I've been burping. I'll learn how to speak again. I'm sorry. Use your words. I blah, 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 blah. That was me during the whole... I was just like, if I just keep talking, maybe something of sense will come out. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs)